Okay, getting things ready here. Good morning, everybody. I hope you're all doing well this morning. You know, the latest on the election is one more state could put Biden in the White House. I mean, that puts me in a bad mood, I have to say. You know, it's not really... You know, it just does. It puts me in a bad mood. What can I say? It's disgusting. It's gotta be false. It's just gotta be false. I, I don't believe it. Okay. Last night, I watched a program that was just, well, it was a podcast that was truly, truly unbelievable. Um, but it's truly, truly, truly true. <laughs> And it's very, very, very corrupt. You have no idea the levels of corruption until these things start coming out. Plus, Biden's one state away from winning the election. That's enough to put you in a bad mood. Okay. I'm trying to fix these. They look better if they're just all hodgepodgey anyway. What, what I need to do is go to a jeweler and have them take one off. Okay. Here it is. It is Economic Hitman. Okay. That's what it's called. Economic Hitman. Powerful stuff. Job of an economic hitman. You just asked the key question, Patrick. And in this hand, I'm offering you a lot of money for you and your friends. And if you choose not to take it, in this hand, I got a gun. What would you do? I'm an entrepreneur. What do I know? I'm just a regular guy. Private plane crashes are the best way to assassinate someone if you ever decide you want to do that. <laughs> the corporation business model is we're going to put you out of business. Your business model is more the mafia business model because it could cost your life. A few suitcases filled with dollars is nothing compared to sending in troops. These are bribes, sex, power, and money. Do you think China's using any of that economic hitman business model? You don't want to negotiate with us? You're strong-arming me? Watch what I'm going to do to you. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we never created a virus. I never said by like that. I never said biowarfare. Does that mean we should retaliate with our own biological weapons? No, not at all. What does it mean? I'm learning how you sat down with these prime ministers and presidents. The glaciers are melting. The polar bears are out there standing on single iceberg. The oceans are rising. Species are going extinct. I hope all the audience is taking notes. We wake up and we look around and we say, oh my God, what's happened? So my guest today may be one of the most interesting guests I've ever had, and I've had a lot of interesting guests. And let me explain to why that is. Imagine if you are thinking about writing a book based on experiences you had 
that influence a lot of economies around the world. Then you go to 29 publishers, and 29 publishers say, we do not want to touch your book. Then eventually somebody picks it up, and the book comes out. The title of the book is called Confessions of an Economic Hitman. It stays on on the New York Times best list for 70 straight weeks, translated in 37 different languages, and sells over a few million copies, and you come out with part two called The New Confessions of a Hitman. You write that book, and you end up sharing the stories of people you were participating with and negotiating with. Imagine writing a book like that, and more importantly, imagine living a life of somebody who has the ability to write that book. That's my guest today, John Perkins. John, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Patrick, it's my pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for having me on your show. You're not it's great to have you. So, so do I go it's on Craigslist? Do I go to Monster? Do I go to Courier Builder if I'm trying to apply for a job of wanting to be an economic hitman? Where do I go apply to want to be an economic hitman? How does that happen? Well, first of all, I would suggest that you don't do it. It's, it's, <laughs> you know, I thought it was my dream job until I realized it was my nightmare job. Uh, yeah, and you know, the, the, what happened to me was uh, when I graduated from business school, uh, I, uh, I was trying to avoid the draft. The Vietnam draft was, was strong then. I was married to a woman whose father was very high up in the U.S. Department of the Navy, and his best friend was very high up in the National Security Agency, the NSA. Um, and that, that job with the NSA was draft deferrable. So, you know, he arranged for me to have an interview. Uh, and I spent a couple of days on uh, most of it on the lie detector, uh, going through this very, very intensive interview with the National Security Agency. And uh, I think, you know, they, they, they found that I had three weaknesses. I can go into those if you want. But sure. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, I grew up in a boys prep school, uh, boarding school, where my dad taught. And we never had much money, and I was surrounded with kids with a tremendous amount of money. You know, I lived on a house on campus. I had saved these boys from the age of four, so I, ne I never wanted for food or shelter, but we never had much money. And I'm surrounded by these kids who've come from, uh, we, 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 area where you come from. They came, some of them came from Tehran, I, and some of them came from Buenos Aires and Paris and Park Avenue, New York, very, very wealthy. I was always very jealous of their wealth. I, I, I wanted to do things they had done. I also grew up in a place pretty devoid of women. So I was very shy around women. And I, you know, I wanted, so what the NSA discovered during these lie detector tests was that I really craved sex, power, and money. And that, what was, that gave them craves. the hook to get, in, to get into me. Then they actually encouraged me to join the Peace Corps for a couple of years, go to the Amazon rainforest, and you know the, the guy who was high up, very high up in the NSA. When I heard, I heard about the Peace Corps. I went to this talk that a Peace Corps recruiter gave at, at the business school where I was just about to graduate, and I was very taken by the, the idea of going and living with indigenous people, who I had always had a fascination about. He encouraged me. He said, we can help you get in and we can make sure you go to the Amazon where you'll live with real authentic indigenous people. You'll learn another language. You'll learn survival techniques. When you come out, uh, you'll be all that much more ready to work for us. But he added one more thing. He said, you know, you may not actually end up working for us. You may end up working for a private corporation. A lot of our people do that. We get a lot of our information that way. And that's exactly what happened. When I got out of the Peace Corps, I was recruited by this private consulting firm, Charles T. Maine. 
and uh, as an economist, uh, I became chief economist fairly quickly, and that led to <laughs> becoming an economic hitman. That's it in a nutshell. Now, when you went to the Peace Corps, did you did your problem of sex, power, and money get solved, or no? Not a, no, not at all. And, and I write about that. You know, in my most recent book, Touching the Jaguar, I go into some detail uh, about that. I did learn another language. I learned about other cultures. I learned some incredible survival techniques. I, at one point, became very, very ill. I, I couldn't keep any food down. I was dying. And I, a three-day terrible uh, adventure to the, get to the nearest medical doctor, including a full day hike through a very dense jungle, and then a two days of riding in a rickety old bus of winding curvy roads up to about 10,000 feet altitude. No way I could do it. The shaman cured me that night. I can go into that more detail if you want to, but to make a long story short, he he cured me and then required that I become his apprentice as as payment for what he'd done for me. Uh, But you know, Patrick, this is 1969. I'd never even heard of a shaman. There was no future in shamanism in those days. I sure, I surely did not want to be a shaman. But the guy, but the guy saved my life, you know? So as it turned out, that was a very, very fascinating experience because one of the things that taught, it taught me that our reality is totally molded by our perceptions. Mm-hmm. Perceptions change everything. And that became very, very handy knowledge for me when I became an economic hitman because basically economic hitmen use perception to mold reality. Very, very, very interesting transition from there. By the way, before we go into the economic hitman, what were some of the interesting questions, if you remember, that the NSA asked you in the interview? Well, here's, here's, here's an example. They asked me, you know, how I felt about the Vietnam War. And I, I was, I'm, a, I'm on a lie detector, I was truthful. I said, I, I have no desire to go off and kill people who've never done any harm to me or be killed by them. And I don't think they're a threat to our country. Well, I thought that was totally screwed me. You know, they wouldn't be interested in me after I said that. Another one was when I was in, in, in college, when I was earlier before I went to business school, I was at Middlebury College. I had a good friend there who was Iranian. And uh, um, he, he, his father was actually a, a general in the Shah's army. Uh, and uh, one night, uh, 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 we were at this bar, we were at this kind of discotheque. Again, the details are in the in touching the Jaguar. We were at this bar and, and I ended up getting sucker punched by a big farmer from the hills of Vermont. And, and uh, my friend Fahard, this, that wasn't his real name. I don't want to use his real name, but I can give it to you. But he he, he pulls out and he had this technique he showed me before. He'd been a professional soccer player for the Club of Rome. He was older than anybody else in his class at Middlebury. He'd taken time off, played soccer. And he had this, he carried this small jackknife and he'd put his thumb up along the blade so just a little tip of the blade show. And he showed me how he'd done this. And this night he did it. He swept it across the guy's cheek. And of course, the guy thinks he's been stabbed by a knife. It's just a, it's really just a little pinprick, but it draws blood. It scares this farmer. It terrified him. He screams out and, and Fahard grabs me, pushes me into the men's room. Fahard. We jump out the window into the, the Otter Creek, the river down below. Oh. We go, we get back to the dorm. And um, the next morning, I'm picked up by the campus police. They take me to the police station. I'm sitting there waiting in the waiting room of the police station, and out comes Fahad from another room with a closed door. He's not allowed to talk to me. They usher him out. They usher me in. 
and they they grilled me on this and i i totally lied i said oh i didn't see anything happen no as far as i know nothing happened we we, we left i don't know anything happened i totally lied and now i'm under a lie detector test with the nsa and they say have you ever had any run-in with the police and i have to tell them and so now i've got these two counts against me there were some other things that went on you know that we went into the thing about obsession with women with sex and totally shy and and also i've, I've said i'd post the vietnam war i've lied to the police well i later discovered they love that the fact that i had the guts to lie to the police mm-hmm. was the kind of person the nsa wanted <laughs> and, and, and the fact you know that, totally that they didn't correct. care about the vietnam war this was they, they already knew at this point this was 1968 they, they basically knew we'd lost vietnam and the nsa didn't they they, they didn't care that wasn't a problem for them so these things that i thought were against me one that they didn't care about the other one really served to my advantage and the fact that and of course i didn't know uh, the connection at that point that that fahard and his father who was a general in the in the in the shah's military had a very very strong connection with the nsa so yeah these things at the time that i thought were just going to screw me actually worked to my advantage worked in your favor wow that's interesting so so you know for for those who haven't read your story who haven't read the book what is the job of an economic hitman well and again you know my official title was chief economist economic hitman was it was kind of like calling a, a cia operative a, 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 a spy you know you don't you don't, you don't call them that <laughs> um, but um my job really and i and i had a i had several dozen people very highly qualified young people working for me but my job was to identify countries with resources our corporations wanted like oil in iran for example and then in in most of these countries arrange huge loans to that country now iran was an exception there they didn't need loans we just wanted their well that's another story but in general it was to arrange a huge loan to that country from the world bank or one of its sister organizations but the money never actually went to the country instead it went to our own corporations in the united states to build big infrastructure projects in the country things like power systems electric power systems industrial parks highways ports uh, so the country was put into debt, took on these huge loans, and the collateral was the resource that was usually still in the ground, like oil. And then our companies were, made these huge profits by building these big projects, these infrastructure projects. And, you know, I went in with the belief that this would help the people of the country become more prosperous. And these were poor countries for the most part. And that this would help them become more prosperous. Because in business school, I was taught that. And the economic models show it, that if you invest a large amount of money in infrastructure, the GDP, the gross domestic product, grows. It does. And so all the models tell you this is the way to help a country. But over time, as I was in this job for 10 years, and perhaps because I'd been in the Peace Corps, I began to understand that actually it wasn't that the poor people weren't getting any better off and the middle classes were getting poorer actually. It was just a few rich families that were making a lot of money. And what we know now is that these statistics are very skewed. So GDP is a reflection of how well the wealthy are doing. 
is it's not a reflection of how well everybody's doing. For example, if you take the United States today, there's three individuals that have as much wealth as half the U.S. population. If those three individuals made a return on their investments last year of 10%, and half the U.S. population lost, lost 3%, we should still show a gain in GDP of something close to 5%. So we see that, that you know, this whole idea that the shaman taught me, that perception molds reality, that creating a perception that GDP is benefited by infrastructure, that's true, but the perception is that GDP reflects how well the country's doing for everybody. And it doesn't. That's a false perception in almost all cases. It took me a long time to, 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 to understand that. Once I understood it, I really didn't want to believe it, Patrick, because I was making a lot of money. I was now getting all the things <laughs> that I had told the NSA I wanted. I was getting lots of sex, uh, lots of money, and lots of power. And I was whining and dining with presidents, you know. Uh, uh, one of them sitting behind you there in, in, in the picture behind you, the Shah of Iran. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, <laughs> so it, once I knew what I was doing was not what I pretended to be doing, what I portrayed myself to be doing, helping poor people, I didn't want to admit it. I didn't want to believe it. I wanted to keep buying into the procession because I thought I was living the American dream and I didn't want to let go of it. John, so if we can go back to the system, so if, if you if you were to tell me a step process, would you say step number one, identify a nation that has a lot of resources that we need, that we can uh, monetize, that they're not doing well financially? Would you say that's step number one? Yes. Okay, what's step number two? Step number two is to send uh, somebody like me and an economic hitman in to convince the president or the minister of finance or whoever's in control that they need to accept a huge loan from the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank or the Inter-American oh, Development yes. Bank or one of these organizations and yes. use that money to hire U.S. corporations to build big infrastructure. So, oh, got it. So, so, you actually, so you do a study to, to show that if they invest, let's say, a few billion dollars in today's terms into building an electric system, you show that for the next 20 years, the economy is going to grow at a pretty pretty high rate. Got it. So, so number one, identify a nation. Number two, go send somebody like yourself, a chief economist, uh, aka economic hitman, to meet with the Ministry of Finance or the PM or the President, whoever it is, the main leader, and tell them we can go to World Bank and get a loan for this much money and have American business create infrastructure in your country, and that's going to create a lot of jobs, and it's going to benefit you. And in that conversation that you're having with them, is that a forced conversation or is that a butter, smooth, yeah, amicable, everyone's going to win? What kind of a conversation is that? You just asked the key question, Patrick. It's a, so you go in and you're armed with a very sophisticated report that your financial experts, the guys who work for me, they, you know, we produced econometric models, fancy, you know, mathematical models to show how everything would benefit, how much industry would grow, and how much, so on and so forth. You go in and you hand this to the president, and you basically say, hey, Mr. President, if you take this loan on, and it's going to really benefit you and your family and all your friends, because your family and your friends own the industries. They own the banks. They own the commercial establishments. And all of those are going to benefit from infrastructure. Oh, and by the way, 
uh, our, our construction companies are going to hire your brother-in-law's firm that happens to lay pipe. <laughs> and and your sister owns the John Deere franchise. We'll, we'll, we'll run a lot of John Deere equipment and we'll pay top dollar for it. We're not going to try to negotiate her down. We're going to negotiate her up. In fact, you, you actually, you end up often, let's say, paying $2 million to rent equipment that should only cost you a million dollars. It's a bribe. But it's a legal bribe. You, nobody can find you fault if you made a lousy decision and paid too much. In practical, nobody's even going to look. But if they did, it would, they, you know, you'd get out. So you, you, all these ideas. Oh, and incidentally, Mr. President, you and your, all your ministers and your cabinet, all of their children are going to get scholarship. We're going to help them get into colleges. My, my company was in Boston, a lot of good colleges. We had a lot of contacts. We're going to get them into the best colleges in, in Boston area, and we're going to give them full scholarships, and we're going to give them jobs during Christmas vacation and summer, and when they get out of college, they have guaranteed jobs with us. These are bribes. But actually, we went out and we talked to the press, the Boston Globe, the Boston media, and we said, hey, you know, we gave a million dollars last year in scholarships to kids from poor countries. We don't mention <laughs> those were the kids who didn't need the scholarships, and, but so there were all the you know there were very strict law, anti-corruption laws in the United States in those days, and I guess they still are. But there's so many ways to get around them, and we we knew all those ways to get around them. So you go in and you tell the president this, you say, so you buy, buy into this loan. And he says, but we're going to take on this huge debt, and it means we're going to have to take money away from education and social services and, and health care to, to pay the interest on the debt. We say, yes, but you're going to make a lot of money, you and your family. So he knows that he's doing something that's probably not going to help his people, but it's going to help him. And then you also say, but if you don't choose to take the rope, the, the, uh, if you don't choose to take this deal, remember what happened to Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran. Remember what happened to Salvador Allende in Chile. Remember what happened to Arbenz and Guatemala and Siem in Vietnam and Lumumba in the Congo. These are all presidents or prime ministers who refused to play the game and were taken out in coups or assassinations. So basically we're saying, remember there's people we call jackals behind the scenes. So basically I'm saying, hey, Mr. President, this hand, I'm offering you a lot of money for you and your friends. But in the, and if you choose not to take it, in this hand, I got a gun. I didn't actually carry a gun, but I knew those guys were basically CIA assets behind me that had guns. And, you know, classic cases, the original case was, was Kermit Roosevelt, who, who overthrew Prime Minister Mossadegh in Iran and replaced him with the Shah, and that, was, that set a precedent. And these presidents all know this. They know they know the history. They know they will be taken out. If so, so what's the choice? You know, Patrick, what would you do? <laughs> well, let me ask you, when you are saying it, how are you saying it to me? Like, I know the way you just said it right now. How would you say it to me if I'm the Shah Iran and you're sitting with me and you're telling me here's the options? Let me. If you if you could role play with me, what would it be like? How would you say well, it? Well, yeah, first of all, with the Shah, we didn't we didn't play quite that game because he had plenty of money. He didn't have to take a loan. We were just trying to convince him that he he ought to work with us rather than the Soviet Union. That he ought to, you know, we wanted his oil, and we were willing to help him westernize his country. And we didn't want he didn't want to go the Soviet route. So that was a little bit different. We'll, we'll get but to that in a minute. Give me an example of somebody who you did. What yes, was let's, say I'm talking, let's say I'm talking to you. You're you're you're, you're the president of Colombia. Okay. Uh, 
and and we, we want to go to your resources there. And, and, I, and I'm saying to you, I'm showing you all these fancy reports that show how well your country's going to do. And you can show these reports to your press, to your people. You can convince your people that by taking on these loans, you're helping the country. You're going to build these big dams. You're going to build these big electrical systems, whatever. So you get a, you get all the material you need here. And and it, it's usually a series of meetings, maybe some of them over lunch with a few cocktails, et cetera. And the president's maybe like a little. And then you, you just sort of subtly start talking about you, you, somehow you bring up the topic of what happened recently to Salvador Allende in Chile or what happened to Arbenz in Guatemala. Depending on what part of the world you're in, you, you talk about these people and you say, you know, isn't that a shame? And you, you talk a little bit about this. And, you know, depending on the president, different presidents, you, you approach differently. And, but they get it. I mean, they know the history. It doesn't, you know, these guys yeah. know what's going on. Their advisors know what's going on. And they're just sitting there at the meetings, too. Some pretty smart advisors who probably, you know, been to business school, the same business schools that I went to and so forth. And everybody's, you know, I, I speak Spanish, but half, most of the people in the room can speak English, too. And they, they get, you know, they get the same background. But I will say, Patrick, and I mentioned, I talk in the book about two presidents who did not play the game. Uh, democratically elected president of Ecuador, Jaime Roldos, and the head of state of Panama, Omar Torrijos. They had tremendous integrity. They saw what I was trying to do, and they didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they understood the dangers they were taking, and they talked about these things. And both of them were, were, I believe, assassinated. They were, they were both taken out, and it's two, almost a little over two months apart from each other. In 1981, they were taken out in, in their private planes in Ecuador first, with Jaime Roldos. His, his private plane crashed. Very suspicious circumstances. And less than three months later, same thing happened to Omar Torrijos in Panama. These were the only two guys that stood up to this, that said, we're not buying these deals, and in fact, made a big point, uh, public relations. They, they went out there and made very strong statements, and they set examples for the world. And they were taken out in these plane crashes, and although there was never a smoking gun found, because in a plane crash, the smoking gun goes up in smoke. Uh, plane crashes, private plane crashes are the best way to assassinate someone, if you ever decide you want to do that <laughs> and uh, because of the evidence is gone but in the case of, of uh, it, 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 one of those cases Jaime Roldos the, the plane's engines were sent to a laboratory in, in, in Switzerland or Sweden Switzerland um, and they concluded that the plane had not crashed it had blown up in the air and so um, and, and there was tremendous other evidence. There's tremendous evidence that, 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 that points to these having been assassinations. How much longer were those assassinations after you sat down with them? Uh, well, with Omar Torrijos, I'd been sitting down with him since mid-70s. This happened in 81. So this had gone on. He'd meanwhile negotiated the Panama Canal Treaty with Jimmy Carter, which turned the canal over to the Panamanians at the end of the, at the, end of the millennium. And... <clears throat> Roldos had only been president for a couple of years. So I'd been a fairly short period with Roldos. Roldos died first. He was a lawyer. He was a college professor. He'd run on a, on a campaign platform of forcing the oil companies, and that was Texaco from the United States primarily, to pay a fair share of its profits 
that it made from Ecuadorian oil to the Ecuadorian people. It was a pretty reasonable thing. And he said, if they don't do it, I'm going to nationalize them. And of course, the oil companies didn't like that. And, he, and I couldn't talk him out of it. I couldn't talk him to take these deals. And he goes down in this plane crash. Right after that plane crash happened, Roldos, uh, excuse me, Torrijos got his family together. And, and I, I know some of the members that were there personally and said, my brother, Jaime Roldos of Ecuador was just assassinated by the CIA and I'll be next probably. But he said, you know, don't worry about it because I've accomplished a, I've accomplished the biggest thing that I wanted to accomplish and that is I got the canal back in the hands and the canal zone back in the hands of Panamanians. I successfully negotiated that contract. So I'm ready to go. And he stuck to his guns. I suppose that was a poor, poor turn of phrase there. <laughs> he got taken out. But very few presidents had that kind of you get guts or insanity, you know. I mean, the, you know, and, and it still goes on. I mean, presidents of these countries are, are in very, very, very difficult so, so, so let me ask you this: really so, 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 if we go back to the system, number one, identify the nation that qualifies for what you're looking for. Number two, go in and get a loan from a world bank and create businesses there and jobs. And in return, we're going to take care of your kids. We're going to put them at Harvard. We're going to put them at Brown. We're going to put them at Columbia. We're going to put them at Yale full ride scholarship, all this other stuff, you're going to be fine and we're going to pay you some kind of an income. Number three, if you don't, here's what could happen to you that happened to the following six, seven, eight people. That's the business model. Is that pretty accurate what the business model is? Yes, up until that point, yes. Okay, so who came up with this business model? Is there somebody that you guys say, well, the founder of this business model was John Doe who used to be XYZ and he taught us to do this because it worked back in the whatever hundreds. Is there somebody that invented the system or was it purely accidental? Well, you know, empire, the idea of, of forming empires is as old as, you know, modern, uh, sort of modern history. It's as old as history, basically. Um, but the real turn happened in Iran in the early 1950s. So when Mossadegh gets uh, elected president, and again, very much, much like Jaime Roldos, he ran on a platform that said the oil companies, we need the oil companies here, but they've got to pay, pay a fair share of the profits they make in Iran to the Iranian people. And uh, the British and the Americans were the oil companies in play here, especially the British company, the company that became BP. Uh, and the British had no, did not have a relationship with Iran, so they called on the Americans and it was Eisenhower, well, first it was Truman. Truman refused to get involved and then Eisenhower became president. He got involved and he tried to convince uh, Mossadegh to, uh, to change his ways. And, but it wasn't happening. Now, Eisenhower, you know, ex-military general, was very afraid of nuclear war with the Soviet Union. And Iran borders the Soviet Union. So he didn't want to send troops in because he was afraid that the Soviets would respond by sending their own troops in and it could escalate to a nuclear war. And so he got together his Secretary of State and his head of CIA, who were the Dulles brothers, the infamous Alan and John Foster Dulles. And uh, they came up with this plan. And the plan was that they identified a CIA agent, a card-carrying CIA agent named Kermit Roosevelt, who happened to be Teddy Roosevelt's grandson. And Kermit Roosevelt was sent off to Iran with literally with suitcases <laughs> filled with dollars and a few friends, a few, a few you know, assistants. 
And they launched this huge campaign to discredit Mossadegh. And, you know, they, they bribed the police, they bribed the hoodlums in the streets to go demonstrate in the streets, they bribed the press. They used this money to uh, convince the country that, or at least to, <laughs> to convince our country, to convince the world in a way that, that this prime minister was very unpopular and that he was a Soviet puppet, that he was a communist. And of course, this is in the in a time in the early 50s when, when there was this huge clash between communism and capitalism, you know, the, the Cold War had really begun. Uh, and so there was this, and, and in the United States, huge amounts of press that that, 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 that was paid for to, to, to say that this guy had to be taken out. And so eventually he was overthrown. And it seemed like a legitimate coup against a guy who was evil to his country. This is, this is you know, the impression that was conveyed to the world. And the Shah of Iran was brought in as a CIA puppet, basically, and placed on the throne, the peacock throne. And so, but this was so successful and it was so inexpensive, you know, a few suitcases filled with dollars is nothing compared to sending in troops. And it was so safe in terms of if, 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 uh, if it didn't work, then there probably wouldn't have been war. Who knows what would have happened to Kermit Roosevelt? But but there wouldn't have been a war. We wouldn't have. We wouldn't have. There was no threat of nuclear war. That it it it, it marked a turning point where successive uh, administrations in the United States could say, now listen, uh, we don't have to go to war to exploit other countries. We can do it economically. There was one problem, and that was that Kermit Roosevelt was a card-carrying CIA agent. If he had been caught, it would have been very embarrassing for the CIA, for the U.S. government. So very shortly after that, the decision was made to use private consultants like me. Mm. And so it would, wouldn't implicate the U.S. government. Got it. So this is why when you went to your NSA interview, they said, you may, we may not hire you, but you may work with one of the companies that we are in partnership with. Exactly. And that became Got a very it. common practice. Now, let me ask you, how many times did the NSA throw companies like that under the bus saying we had nothing to do with them? We had no business with them. Was it pretty common practice to throw the companies under the bus once somebody screwed up? Well, we always knew that they, they would do that uh, if, we screwed, if we screwed up, but I don't know how many that actually happened to because I think in general, uh, you know, we were pretty successful. People in my position were, were pretty successful because these the heads of states of these countries had and few options, really. I mean, they, they, they knew the options. How many, a, no, go how, ahead. how many economic hitmen like you were there at the time in America? I don't know. I never okay. did know. I never did know. But what I do know, and, and why I wrote uh, the follow-up to Confessions of an Economic Hitman 12 years later, the new Confessions, is because I, that, that whole species has grown so much over the years. And it's not only people like me who are kind of generic. We wanted to arrange deals that would help U.S. corporations. And we didn't really care whether Bechtel got the contract or Brown and Root or, or Halliburton or General Electric. We didn't really care who got the contract as long as we got a piece of the action and we made sure that we would get a piece of the action. But now, in addition to people like, like that who are still out there, uh, every major corporation has its equivalent of economic hitmen. So, you know, so whether it's it's uh, Raytheon or General Dynamics or uh, 3M or General Electric or crap. Walmart, for that matter, they all you have people Walmart. that are going out into these countries and, and trying to arrange better deals for their for their company. 
you know, we see that so blatantly when a company decides that it's going to build. We, we even see it within the United States. So remember when Amazon was going to, you know, put in their next headquarters office, they, they got uh, Northern Virginia to lie with New York City. And what they were asking, they had these economic hitmen going in and telling, and telling these cities, hey, look, you'll get a lot of employment here if we move our headquarters here or part of our headquarters here. But you got to give us a big tax break, and you got to you got to give us a low uh, wage rate that we can deal with. And so you don't think you don't think that's appropriate. Just to kind of put that, you don't think that's an appropriate uh, thing to do for a company to say, if I bring you twenty two thousand five hundred jobs at one hundred fifty thousand dollar your income, give me some tax breaks. You don't think that's the right thing to do? Is what you're saying? Well, I think we have to be careful. I, I think that I, 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 I'm not sure there's a general rule, but I think what we have to look at is what are the trade-offs. And New York City actually won the contract with Amazon and then decided that they weren't going to accept it because it was a bad deal for them. So if you give the company such tax breaks, but I they all... Think, I don't think New York City said no, though. I think AOC campaigned around it saying the fact that the rent's going to go up and both the Blasio and... Uh, 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 what's the governor's Cuomo. name? Uh, Cuomo. But the Palacio Cuomo wanted it, but AOC's campaign drove Bezos away, and Bezos finally said, I'm not going to put it here. So New York wanted it, but AOC kind of pushed him away. Well, yeah, who does AOC represent? You know, I mean... Socialist. Obviously, she's, a, she's a, a, a big supporter of the socialistic philosophy, and Cuomo and de Blasio kind of wanted those jobs in New York. And you would think that Cuomo and... And Bellasio would be more powerful than her, wouldn't you, actually? I mean, they, they, they've got the big corporations behind them. I don't think so. I think because to, to nowadays, you know, one of your talks you gave, which was very powerful, you said, uh, uh, I don't know if it was your TEDx or I don't know which uh, uh, interview you did. You talked about the fact that the power people have today to send emails to companies to talk about the fact that, hey, let's do more social. Let's give back to community. Let's use our power and resources to Send an email. People are listening nowadays. There's this thing that email today called Twitter. Well, AOC has nearly 8 million Twitter followers. That's more than both of them combined times 10, you know, times uh, 6. So you have to realize that it's it's different today. Just because you're a mayor of New York or governor of New York doesn't mean you have more influence than somebody that's a congressman with 8 million followers. One's got a bigger voice than the rest do. And is that democracy in the works? Um... Uh, I mean, it's called marketing to me. It's not democracy. I think. I think. <laughs> yeah, there's always been a fine. There's always been a fine line there, hasn't there, between yeah. marketing. No, no, no. In any case, I, you know, I don't know, you know, who's right or wrong. But the point being that, you know, do you bring a company in and offer them huge tax breaks, but at the same time you give them huge benefits in terms of the school system? the fire departments, the police departments, the sewage systems, all these other things that the company benefits from, the, the airports, do, do they pay their fair share? And th that's a question I think every community has to ask, or ask itself. And we see the same thing in countries. So we've got a company going in and, and talking to Indonesia saying, hey, if you let us build our next plant here, uh, and we, we will build our next plant here if you'll give us big tax breaks. If you don't, we'll go to the Philippines. And these countries, you know, always have to look at this. And, and nine times out of 10, in my experience, it's the wealthy people who benefit. So you give the company the tax breaks and the wealthy people somehow end up getting the kind of deals that I described where their brothers get these contracts and their sister and so on and so forth. So, but I think, you know, that's why I say, I don't think there's a general answer to your question. I mean, tax breaks can be used very, very wisely. 
but they can also be a very corrupt form of, of uh, companies getting things for free that they probably should be paying for. And I ask these things, Patrick, an argument could be made to, let's not tax corporations at all, but let's, let's really tax the people who benefit from them, the stockholders, especially the wealthiest stockholders who, who pay their fair share. I mean, there's, there's so many different ways to look at this whole process of how do we, how do we support our police forces and our fire departments and our hospitals and our schools and our utility companies who who pays who pays the price for these things i mean listen we're going into a whole different conversation because if you if you think about that part you know i'd much rather have amazon go to new york than go to dc because if you go to dc that's the ultimate crony capitalism business model where you are now in the you know, you you know what it costs to senators pass a law nowadays. I think it's fifty thousand dollars to hundred thousand dollars. It doesn't cost that much money to do some of that. So, you know, if they right. go to New York, and then I think from the governor's standpoint, like I moved my business from LA to here. Okay, when I moved here, I brought all the jobs here, and you know, every uh, raise, everything that we did, Texas got the benefit of the people that are living here, whether they bought homes, they get their kids send their kids to private school, all the money they spent at the market. You know, gas, all of that stuff. Texas benefit from it. California lost from it, right? And you've seen a lot of that with Elon Musk just put his plant in um, uh, Austin. So I'm, I'm just thinking economically how that makes sense. For some states, I understand the benefit of having 22,500 jobs paid on an average of $150,000. Bring it to my city. I'd love to find a way to make it work with you if I'm a governor or mayor at that time. But going back to the business model you're talking about, it, it got me thinking. So, one, find a country that's somewhat desperate has resources number two go in and make an offer with the corporation hey world bank lends us four billion dollars we're going to build the infrastructure into your country it's going to create a bunch of different jobs three wink wink we'll take care of your kids private school all this other stuff that's going to happen four if you don't do we're going to kill you so the corporation business model is we're going to put you out of business your business model that you had that you were working with is more the mafia business model because it could cost your life if you don't do it those six stories that you have. How much of that do you think is happening today with other countries doing it to America? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, can you be more specific? For example, you know, uh, I don't know, let me go in and I'm uh, China. You know, if you look at like 30 years ago, Russia was the enemy. Today, it's China's the enemy, okay? China's surpassed Russia as an enemy. And China comes in and says, hey, McConnell, I know your wife's uh, uh, father is uh, a very, very well-known billionaire in China. You know, we'll do this for you. Just kind of be a little bit lenient with us, but we'll take care of you. Hey, uh, Biden, you know, if you allow us to do this one and a half billion dollar deal, we'll put your son on the board and pay you $50,000. It's a form of an economic hitman. That, that's what I'm saying. How much is, How much of that is China studied what U.S. did, and now China's saying we're going to take it to a whole different level. Do you think China's using any of that economic hitman business model? You know, I I, I, I hate to speculate on stuff I don't really know, and I don't really know what's going on now in, in those terms in the United States, except what I read or, or hear. I, I'm, I'm, I certainly would expect that China would be trying to do that um, because that, that is part of the model. What I, what I do know is... What China has been doing in, in Latin America, for example, where I still spend a lot of time, I, I spend a, a, a normal year, I spend two to three months in, in 
Latin America, in Ecuador, Colombia, Costa Rica, Guatemala, and many places. And I've seen in the Bahamas, I've seen how China's making huge inroads into these countries. Um, you know, China's playing the same game that we did in a way of making these, these huge loans. And it's got these two big banks, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and BRICS uh, Bank that are that are outspending the World Bank and getting very being very very successful at it um, and China's been making a lot of mistakes uh, they built a huge dam in Ecuador that's got cracks in it because they built it on a fault line that so an active volcano I mean crazy stuff there's a hotel that was built in in the Caribbean uh, that that's the Chinese thing. built and the pipes the the toilet pipes were all too small I, I guess the Chinese people are smaller so I don't know what the story is there but they had to then completely replumb re the whole system and they had to put they couldn't go back in the wall so they had to put the pipes on the outside of the walls huge terrible mistake you know they've been making some big mistakes but what China has done <clears throat> differently than the United States and I, I, I asked I, I asked my friends in high places and some of the Latin American countries. Why are you taking loans from China? Don't you think that they're they're going to do the same thing? That you're, 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 that's coming out. We'd much rather take loans from China than the United States. And I'd say, but wait, aren't they after your resources too? And they say, yeah, they're after our resources. We don't have the technology to mine, to, to drill for oil, to do these things. So we need outside country to help us. And we know that the United States has a record of, of overthrowing our governments and assassinating leaders. We all know that. And of building military bases on our soil and of forcing us to vote against Cuba, the United Nations, doing things, exercising huge controls over us. And China hasn't done that. China's not built any military bases here. They've not taken out any of our presidents. They've not been involved in any coups. And so we prefer to take loans from them. So, and I'm not, I'm not defending what China's doing by any means because I think their motives are the same, but I will say that I think that they may have learned from our mistakes, U.S.'s mistakes in, in being quite so blatant as we've been in some of these places. So they're very much using the same techniques that I used, except maybe they're not holding the gun up quite the same way. They're basically, oh, they're, they're basically offering money and you know china has this long history of, of huge amounts of exploitation out into the world through commerce very seldom has it used military might except in what it considers its own sphere of influence which is uh, uh, which is uh, tibet and uh, the south china sea and uh, and taiwan but it, it's 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 used the you know the silk road it's used this 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 very commercial a form of exploitation uh, to create its own version of empire. So let me ask you, who do you trust more yourself? You've been all over the world. You've represented U.S. You've dealt with a lot of different countries. Do you do you trust China more? Do you trust U.S. more? Well, I'm an American. I'm, a, I'm an American. I trust the United States. Uh, and, I, I'm, and I'm also sad that we made some of the mistakes that we made in the past that have put us in this position. That's one of the reasons I write the books I write. And why I'm talking to you because I think we've made some big mistakes and I, I think we need to really look at those mistakes and, and correct them. I think we should be the world leader. We should lead the world into democracy and a, a good form of capitalism. And uh, we have not done a very good. Once the Soviet Union collapsed in '91, uh, 
we had an opportunity to really get out there and show the world how, so how easily. It could be, how, how we could really set them up for the world. And we didn't do a very good job at it. And now the Chinese are stepping in and, and telling the world that they can do a better job. I don't think they can do a better job. I'm, I'm an American. I want to, and I want to see us resume the leadership role and do it in a, in a way that will convince the rest of the world that our system is the best. John, how much are you following the election right now? How much are you following the story of the election right now, going back and forth between Biden and Trump? Well, uh, yeah, I'm following it. I don't know, you know, how, how much. What do you mean? <laughs> how much can you follow? I mean, it's in the news. I listen to the news every day. And, and, well, the reason why I'm asking that is because, you know, when I asked the question about McConnell and if there was a model of economic hitman being used for them, for Chinese to potentially try to win over McConnell or Biden, you kind of skim past through it. But somebody that this is like your cup of tea, this is your world. I mean, I would assume you'd be an expert to give us feedback to see if, if let's just say China was uh, bringing a deal in of one and a half million dollars and investing and paying $50,000 a month to somebody's son, is that a model of an economic hitman? Yeah. Is that a it is, so that is a model of an economic hitman. Yeah, if that's what's happening, yes, the same. It's very similar to the model that, that I, I did. What I was basically saying, Patrick, is, you know, I, I, I like to have a lot of credibility, and I think I do in, on, on, from all parties. I don't, I don't take a political stance. And I, oh, I, what a world intentionally, uh, I mean, I have my own politics, but I don't try to bring it in. I want to be, I talk about what I know, what I've experienced, and what I was basically saying is right now, I'm not in that business, and so it's hard to comment on it. I can comment, and, and I haven't had conversations with the leaders of the United States in, in quite a few years. I do have conversations fairly frequently with leaders of South America. I was just on a program the other day with the former president of Colombia and also with the former president of Ecuador. And I, I, I'm in conversation with leaders in other countries much more than I am with my own country. That's sad. So, so, uh, okay, like so at the same time, you know, one thing that makes you very interesting is when you speculate what happened with a, uh, I think John F. Kennedy, you've speculated that John F. Kennedy could potentially be an inside job, right? Like meaning the assassination was possibly done from the inside. Yes, or you don't have any speculation with John F. Kennedy? Well, no, I don't have any speculation. I, I only read the, what the papers say, what we've heard, and, and, and the U.S. Congress and a joint com commission uh, ruled against the idea that there was one assassin. On the other hand, I guess it was the FBI of rule that there was one assassin. I don't pretend to know. I think there's always that possibility. I think there's always that possibility that might, there might have been more to it than we, than we know, but I certainly don't have any reason to suspect otherwise, personally. Got it. And, and have you ever commented on MLK, if MLK was potentially assassinated uh, or no? Any thoughts on that with your experience? Martin Luther King? Yeah. Well, he obviously was assassinated. Was it an inside job? Oh, no, I don't think I've ever speculated. Don't speculate on that. I have no idea. Got it. I, you know, I, I wonder because, you know, sometimes you sit there and you, you read these stories. You know, I, I was born in Iran and I sometimes wonder Shah's exodus. How much of that? You hear the, uh, the stories of both sides. You know, one end, Carter comes in, toast, leaves. The revolution begins. They bring somebody from France, Paris, that was exiled twice. Khomeini, he lives over there. He's sending these tapes. Tapes. They're spreading. Twelve months later, the momentum gets very high. You know, let's blame Savak. No, let's blame 
the Molas, no, let's blame, you know, the Shah, no, let's blame Khomeini's people. And then there's a Cinema Rex fire, which I'm sure you remember, where 400 people were in a theater in Abadan, and all these guys, folks die, and all with Savakas, then no cops right across the street, whose fault was it? And then some say America caused the revolution in Iran, and some say the people of Iran were just sick of it. From your experience of having been around a lot of those people, what would you say, your opinion on what happened in Iran with the end of Shah's regime? Well, first of all, I was shocked at what happened in Iran. And my own personal experience was one night I'm sitting in the, the Tehran Hilton, uh, sorry, uh, the Intercontinental in Tehran at the, at the bar. Uh, I was staying there and I'm sitting at the bar and I get a tap on the shoulder and I turn around and there's a man behind me who I recognize. And it's Fahar, the guy who I went to Middlebury College with and got in the knife. Soccer, yeah. He got expelled uh, for being in that knife fight. Uh, they did they did pin it on him, I, even though I denied it. Um, and uh, he, he taps me on the shoulder, he's standing behind me, and I haven't seen him in, in many years, well over 10 years. Uh, he's gained a lot of weight, uh, but I recognize him, and, and we, 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 chat, chat, we, 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 we just chat for a few minutes, and then he said, John, I got a ticket here in my hand, when you're flying out with me on Air France tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. to, to uh, Rome. And I said, well, well, no, I've got a meeting tomorrow with a, somebody, somebody very high up in the Shah's administration, and he said, no, you're not, you're going with me to Rome. You, you, we're going to go and stay at my dad's house. And I said, well, your dad is a, is a general in the Shah's army. He's here. He's not in Rome. And, and Fahad said, no, he's, he's always had a house in Rome. He's kept it and he's, he's, he's living there now. He's, he's left around permanently. And you're coming with me. And, and I got on the plane with him the next morning. And it was the next day, all that next week, that the things erupted in Iran, that the beginning of the revolution happened. And I never... And, and I went and I stayed at, 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 um, at uh, the general's house Sorry, in Rome for a couple like of days. That. And, and uh, you know, I said, so what's going on? He said, well, the Shah has lost it. He's, he's out. He's, he's never going to make it. And, 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 and this guy said, I think the Shah has uh, lost his mind to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. He's, not, he's not the guy he used to be. And, you know, I never really understood what went on because yeah. from my perspective, and most everybody that I knew that was working in Iran, the Shah was very popular. His picture was everywhere. He, he and, the, and the Princess Farah, the, 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 his wife, the, their pictures were everywhere. And people seemed to really love them. We, we thought they did. And, and she was sponsoring international tennis tournaments and, and film festivals and bringing a lot of culture to the country. Um, and uh, we had this impression. And so I was shocked, totally shocked. But, you know, over the years, people pointed out to me that all the information I ever got in Iran came from people, Iranians, who spoke English, who were mainly educated in the United States or England. And they all worked for the Shah, ultimately, you know, one form or another. All So whenever I was out interviewing people who didn't speak English, I had interpreters there with me who spoke English. So, you know, it was portrayed to me that I didn't really understand the tremendous undercurrent against the Shah. I don't know whether it was there or not. I've been told I just didn't see it or hear it because I, I wasn't privy to that information. Unlike in Latin America, where I could always hear the undercurrent 
uh, some of the anti-Americanism that was going on there, some of the fear of exploitation, because I, I'm fluent in Spanish, so I could talk to, you know, street sweepers, I could talk to, you know, carpenters and people in the street. It wasn't just that I didn't have to do anything through an interpreter. I didn't have to do anything through an interpreter. So there's a big difference. So in Iran, we, I, I was very much blindsided, and I think most everybody was. I mean, the companies lost a lot of money. My own company lost a lot of money. It was interesting, Patrick, that my company, Charles T. Maine, in all these countries where we work, we, we usually were paid by the World Bank or one of those organizations. So we didn't worry about getting paid. The money came directly to us from the World Bank. It never went to Colombia or Guatemala or Ecuador. They, they, they signed off on the loan, but the money went directly from the World Bank to our banks. And so we didn't worry. The one country where we, that owed, and, and if countries did owe us money, we insisted on being paid before we produced the report. So we'd go in and do the work, and then we'd have a report that they wanted, but we wouldn't give it to them until we get paid. Iran was the one exception. We trusted Iran. We trusted the Shah. And so uh, my company lost a lot of money uh, after, the coup, after the overthrow, after the coup, after the overthrow of the Shah. Uh, and, uh, you know, so we were totally blindsided. I mean, we just didn't have any idea. We thought the place was safe. It was, it was a very interesting thing as I, as I look back on it, to think of how how naive we were, I guess. And again, I don't know, was there a big undercurrent? I, I, I still don't know, you know, what, what the story is. And it's, I mean, it's been 30 years since this, since the event happened. You, you even hear CIA reports saying the fact that uh, there was involvement with U.S. wanting to get him to fall and uh, uh, for the Shah to have a fall. So you read a lot of different stories. I just thought maybe if you had been involved in that, maybe you would have certain well, I, that we don't have. I can't imagine that they wanted the mullahs to take over. Like, I, I just can't see, you know, how that serves any U.S. interest. Yeah, yeah, but but yes, because at that time there was an element of uh, them being more reasonable and the Shah was getting a little too powerful in the, in the world and they were getting ready to pass U.K. and U.K. used to own the, uh, you know, Anglo-Persian oil company that turns out to become, you know, you know, this BP years later and back in the days they used to own 90% of it and Iran didn't have a clue what to do and the Shah renegotiated the deal and took it over and they owned the oil. So then Iran became super powerful. Education got better. Things got better. Frank Sinatra used to party over there. Everybody used to go over there. Elizabeth Taylor used to date Zahedi. All these things happened to Iran and Iran became a place where rich people would go to, and some people weren't happy about it. And let's face it, the Shah of Iran got a little bit uh, too confident in a couple interviews, but you know, with BBC said that the blue-eyed people are taking too many sleeping medicines. I don't know if you remember that interview or not when that took place. And uh, he said, within five years, we'll be the size that you are, and within 25 years, we'll be competing with other Western companies. And he had a smirk on his face when he said that. It's almost a method of competition we're coming after. And I don't know if politicians like that, because the more turmoil in the Middle East, the more control. The less turmoil, the more control. You know, it's 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 a it's a um, it's an interesting dynamic of what happened. I just thought maybe you had insight that maybe we didn't have. Yeah, and, and it's also interesting that this guy who was very close to the Shah, but my friend's father, who had been a, who was a general uh, and, and close to the Shah, you know, said that he thought the Shah was losing it mentally. That he was, you know, he was he was losing it. He had dementia or something. And of course, we know he had cancer. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's very very complex, but it's always been it's always been 
mind-boggling to me to try to understand exactly what happened and how, you know, if the CIA wasn't involved in the overthrow of Iran, then how could the CIA have been so blindsided? It's one thing for me to be blindsided. I don't speak Farsi, but people in the CIA certainly did. They certainly had operatives. They certainly had access to Salak, the, the, the Shah's very brutal secret service. The CIA was deeply involved with Savak, or had been. Uh, so CIA trained the Savak. CIA actually trained Savak, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Savak was almost like... brutal methods Savak learned from CIA, which is a interesting who trained them, you know. But, 